In the South, haying conditions are a little different. Equipment is different. It takes a, a little bit of expertise. Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, sponsored by Vermeer, your trusted source in hay and forage equipment. Today, I'm joined by Ernie Cooper. Ernie's a territorial sales manager for ACI Distributors in Florida and Georgia. He deals in a variety of equipment, but I'll let him tell you more about that. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Yeah, I work for ACI Distributors, and we actually sell, I think it's roughly 23 different lines of equipment. Kind of like to say that we, we handle everything but the tractor, and we leave the tractor to the to the dealerships to handle. We have a lot of hay equipment, a lot of dirt-moving equipment, several you know sprayers, like I said, pretty much everything, anything you want farming other than the, the, the tractor we have. Tube line, bell wrappers, tube line nitro spreaders, HLA loader attachments, and horse header carts, McHale balers, casual bell moving equipment, and bell slicers, just to list a few others. Ferry, boom mowers, the industrial balers from Go Wheel, some of the hemp guys that are bailing hemp, bell processors, highline bell processors, uh, ideal post pounders, jacko sprayers, NDE mixers, photovolt wagons, uh, landscaping equipment, and all from Reist. Uh, RTP is one of our big products with uh, wildlife food plot, plot drills, Citrix hay equipment, Twin Star rakes, Westendorf front end loaders, pretty much anything you can come up with, we have. We like to be the one stop shop for all the, the dealer short lines, as we call it. John, I'd like to kind of explain to you what a distributor's role is. You know, the equipment comes straight from the factory, straight to the dealership. And with a lot of companies, that, that is the case, and that is true. You know, I mean, deer, when you order a tractor, deer sends it to the deer dealer. But with a distributorship, basically what we do is we are the marketing arm for that product. So if a company doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure in the U.S., he can go through a distributor, and then we handle the marketing of that product for them. We also handle basically all the warranty claims and all the service issues, and we are actively acting as the factory here in the country, I guess is the easiest way to kind of simplify things and explain what we do. Basically, we handle all the marketing and all the warranty and all the service and all that for McHale here in the U.S., then it breaks down into, you know, well, we don't cover it all over the U.S. You know, we have a, you know, ACI Distributors has a territory within the United States that we cover, which is predominantly, you know, the, the southeast is what we cover for McHale. Uh, and then different product lines, we handle different areas for different product lines. For instance, like Van Uzer is one of our main product lines, but we don't necessarily handle, we don't handle the marketing for Dan Uzer in Georgia and Florida. I don't have that territory, so I don't I don't sell Danuser. That's when when you talk to a McHale rep on Facebook or whatever, you might be talking to a rep that doesn't cover your area and a company that doesn't cover your area. I'm interested in this marketing component. You do the regional marketing advertising coordination for the companies. What I do for, you know, my job being Georgia, Florida, in a little corner of Alabama there, I call on the dealers and I handle, you know, if they have a, a sales call that they need to make, you know, I'll go out, help the dealer. The biggest part of my job is teaching the dealers, training the dealers, uh, doing sales training with the sales staff at the dealerships. We also have 
service guys that come in and do service training at those dealerships within those areas. And you facilitate that service training too, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we spend the, you know, usually almost every manufacturer, we end up visiting factories and uh, most of them all have training at least, you know, every other year, if not every year where we have to go to the factory and do, do training. You said you dealt with some European lines. Does that mean you've had some nice European trips? We've been to, uh, I've been, yeah, I've been to Europe a few times. One of our favorite trips over there is for the Agritechnica Farm Show. If you've never been to Agritechnica, that's one of the things that, that everybody should put on their bucket list. It it's, uh, far exceeds anything I've ever seen here in the U.S. It's just incredible. I think they have like 27 buildings of equipment, uh, indoor farm show. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Some of the booze factories spend hundreds of thousands of dollars building them. One thing I like to tell people just don't understand just how amazing it is. One of the coolest things I saw at the last one was uh, JCB actually had a log cabin built in their booth. Oh, jeez. Uh, it's just insane uh, the, what, what's there. I mean, it's, and that's one of our, I guess, one of our main things. We like to go to Agritechnica and see all the new equipment, see the stuff that we don't necessarily see here in the U.S. We, we go to that show basically to find equipment to bring to the U.S. to improve the products we have here. You know, we go to find things that we don't have availability here of in the U.S., but we can use. One of the biggest things, you know, one of our biggest markets is haylage and uh, doing wet hay. And obviously, Europe, because their climate, Ireland and that area, have a lot more. Number one, they have a lot more experience with haylage because they've been doing it a lot longer. Uh, And their their environment is even more conducive to haylage. So their equipment is more specified for haylage, whereas here in the U.S., most of our hay equipment is focused around dry hay because we've been doing dry hay for forever here. Uh, well, you know, most of Europe, there's such a focus on wet hay that their equipment is usually leaps and bounds ahead of where we're at here in the U.S. So it's usually a little bit more advanced technology-wise and R&D-wise for that matter. What's the most interesting thing that you've seen uh in your travels in Europe and maybe just going to Agritechnica? The most impressive thing equipment-wise is all the potato, which here in the southeast we don't do a lot of potatoes, but oh. the potato harvesting equipment at, at Agritechnica, there was a one whole building and nothing but potato harvesting. And just some of the technology in that was just un- unbelievable. Now, I'm from Washington State, and Idaho's not too far away. So... <laughs> You know more, a lot more about potato farming than I do. The largest potato-producing county in the country is only about an hour and a half from here. I'd love to get your thoughts on the scale differences in, in equipment and, and between industries. Maybe comparing and contrasting a big old John Deere combine against a, a grimy potato harvester and, and maybe then compare that to hay equipment. I think that's one thing that we've done a lot of here lately with McHale We've gotten a lot more experience in using a high-end baler specifically that's built to handle haylage. So by by focusing on being able to bail uh, high, being being able to bail wet hay, you have the ability to bail high volume at high speed. That's allowed us to bring that into the U.S. You've got heavier bearings, heavier chains, you know, all those things that allow higher technology 
equipment, not necessarily from a computer standpoint, but just from a heavier machine that, that does the job at a higher rate, higher volume, higher speed than what we're accustomed to here in the U.S. You mentioned a couple of things in there, bigger, heavier bearings, heavier chain. Is that what makes a piece of equipment good or bad? Not necessarily, but, you know, most of the time when you go, you know, heavier bearings, when you're, you're putting a 2,000 to 2,500-pound roll uh, and sometimes even higher than that, you don't use the same equipment to do a 4,000-pound job that you do to do a 1,000-pound job. By doing those things, uh, you ha- seem to have a lot less breakdown, a lot less wear and tear. We've got bailers out in, in Europe running 90 to 100,000 bales. Uh, I've seen them in the shop. They're, they're in there going through them, getting them ready to go back to the field for the next season. By doing those upgrades and doing those advancements, you end up getting a, a lot higher quality, longer line, longevity piece of equipment. I like asking the hard questions around equipment in particular. Talking about implements, it's a little bit less of an issue, but how do you view technology in regards to farming equipment? It's a necessity as you know, labor is getting harder and harder to find, and quality labor is even harder to find than that. So anytime that you can, you can become more advanced and more efficient uh, is going to be an advantage to you. And your thoughts on having to have a computer program to fix stuff? You know, that, that's kind of funny. And I guess, you know, when you get into the tractor end of deals, you know, you have to, everybody complains about having to plug, plug them up to tell you what's wrong with them. Uh, that's one good thing I like about a lot of the European design of, of Baylor's, you know, the Mikhail Baylor looks very complicated, but it's actually very, very simple. And, you know, all the computer system is right there in that monitor. So it's not very complicated at all. Computers are a way of life, and uh, you've got to stay with the time. So Octobus and that kind of thing is coming, and, you know, we will be prepared for it. Is there anything in that regard that you see coming down the pipe that you're excited about? Yes. Oh, absolutely. You know, for instance, with Mikhail, anytime they get new advancements, they usually try to test it in Europe before they before they send it all over the world. They'll run it there for a couple of years, and I know... I know that there are some uh, things coming from Octobus controls, and I actually think they released Octobus on the fusion balers in Europe already, so we should be seeing those balers, the Octobus-compatible balers are coming. Uh, should be here, you know, I would think, within the next couple of years at the latest. Take me through what that does for a producer. What's the value add in, uh, in those Isobus computer connections? Well, it, it basically saves a lot on, on, well, it makes the baler more efficient. It will allow, the baler does all, tells everything what to do. You know, the tractor stops on its own. The track, the baler dumps the bale on its own. Basically got an operator up there that's overseeing the operation because the baler is able to do pretty much everything on its own. Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. I'm Danny Wan and, and I switched to the Vermeer 604R because I believe this baler is built to last. I bail about 4,000 bales a year, and I think as much money you give for a baler, if they need to bail 4,000 bales a year, even if it's for 10 years, they, they need to get it done. The day I ran it, we absolutely had no issues at all. It fired up and I bailed like some guy. <laughs> it just bailed all day long. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash What about automation? What you just said there, 
that kind of lends itself towards not having an operator. Well, you know, more and more things. Another product line that we cover is Jocto, and Jocto now has a completely auto-driven uh, sprayer uh, that's been released. Those things are getting more and more important. Like I said, as labor gets harder and harder to find, uh, you've got to become able to, to do it with less and less manpower. Um, the other thing is, you know, computers are, are able to fine-tune things and cut on, cut off, save money as far as spraying overlapping chemicals. And anytime you you get the automation in there, you get the ability to really fine-tune your efficiency. And that's the biggest thing. But the autonomous autonomous sprayers and that kind of thing are are here, and we're going to get more and more in that direction. What skill sets do producers need to be able to function in that environment going forward? Maybe uh, somebody just coming out of high school right now looking at college choices. When it comes to coding and computer programming and that kind of thing, when you think of farming, you don't really think of those things, but we're becoming more and more in that realm. There's going to be some great opportunities for for young minds. I I don't mind telling you, my 15-year-old son can do a lot more things with with an iPhone than, than I'm capable of. So the next generation coming on, even though we're not necessarily plowing the dirt like we used to the the computer age there's plenty of opportunity there uh and i i really feel like you know moving forward in the future the the whole uh, autonomous operating tractors and the computer technology and that is, is where it's at that's where it's going to be heading more and more especially with you increase minimum wage it's, it's even more apparent that we're going to need more autonomous more ability to be be efficient on our own the economist in me says, well, there's a trade-off between labor and capital, between the amount of money that you spend on equipment and the amount of money that you spend on labor. Yeah, there is a point of uh, return on your investment there at some point, isn't there? Sure is. Well, and that's where the efficiency of creating these things where, you know, it is expensive. And technology is always going to be expensive. Chemical prices and fertilizer prices certainly aren't going down. So, as you become more and more efficient and environmentally speaking, you know, if you can cut down on the amount of chemical spray, you know, environmentally, there's just so many advantages to computerized systems and more autonomous systems that can maintain those things better, better accuracy than humans. You know, it, it's, it's a benefit to everybody. You've been out and interacted with a lot of customers. Do you have any, any favorite customer stories? That's one thing that I'm blessed with in, in my my part of the world is we really have some some really good guys. Uh, I've developed friendships with with a lot of customers across you know Georgia and Florida. I laughed the other day. I said I, I think I live in North Georgia, but I think I've got more friends in South Florida than I do do at home. Could be because I spend more time down there than I do at home. But it, it, it's amazing. One of one of the, my favorite things about my job is being able to interact with the huge cow-calf operations in South Florida. Um, oh, sure. I've got several customers down there, and, and one thing people don't know is Florida has got a huge number. Of, most people think of Florida, they think of Disney. They don't realize that I think I counted it up a couple of weeks back, I think seven or eight of the top 25 cow-calf operations in the country are all, all in, in Florida. Three of those seven are actually in South Florida within one or two counties of each other. 
and in the job I've, I'm in, I, I've been on almost every one of those farms, been involved with a lot of their farming operations, and it's that's my favorite part of this job is I learn something every day. Uh, I thought I was a cowman until I started spending time in South Florida and realized that those boys down there know a whole heap more about cattle than I do. Uh, and I've run cattle all my life and, and hay farmed all my life. We all laugh. And one of the big advantages I have is I've spent so much time doing a lot of the R&D and, and whatnot and running demos and, and working with farmers in South Florida that I've learned the crop. And it, it's amazing to me the the differences in the crop. When you get south of I-4 in Florida, it's a total different world down there. People have no idea. And, and I'll be honest with you, if you'd have told me seven years ago before I went to work with ACI and started spending a lot of time in South Florida, if you told me there was a crop in the United States that I could build 45, 50 rolls of the acre off of, I, I'd have said you're crazy. But I've done it. I've seen it done quite a bit. Hermathia is an amazing crop. What was the name of that crop? Hermathia. Hermathia. That's it's a tropical grass that grows basically can grow and stand in water. Oh, okay. And I've seen it so thick that you've had you have to run a mower through it three times just to get it down to the ground. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and and the tractor will sit up on top of it. Uh, the tractor when you're cutting it will sit up on top of it, and it's almost like it's floating because it won't even be getting to the ground. Won't be getting any tractor traction on the ground because it's just walking on top of this storage like driving on a uh, silage pile yes yeah very similar actually it, it, you step out of the tractor and, and it's long runners so when you're bailing the window it'll actually you can look in front of the tractor and see it dragging crop to the baler you're talking rolls per acre that hurts my head a little bit i think in tons what uh what kind of dry tonnage are we talking about to dry bail it, I think most of them are, it'll, it'll take up to two weeks to dry bail it. There's no dry hay in that situation. Oh, what yeah. kind of dry matter tonnage per acre are we talking about? I don't know. I'd have to do do the figures on it. They're, they do dry hay some down there. Uh, actually, there's quite a bit of it bailed for dry hay. I won't say the quality is all that great, right. uh, but it's extremely high in sugar. So it it uh, it really does ensile well. The problem with the crop is, is, is when it's baled at the right maturity, it'll still have a high yield. But it, you know, when you get to 35, 40 rolls the acre, it, it's really it's an over mature crop. So oh, okay. what happens? It, it's a different mentality in that that part of the world because whereas most of the time, even where I live in North Georgia, you know, we bale hay through the summer. You know, uh, May, June, July, August. You know, that's that's our hay time. Well, in June, July, August, in South Florida, it's flooded. There, there, you can't get in the fields. So that grass just sits there and grows and grows and grows. Well, when it finally dries up enough for you to get in the field to bail, well, guess what? It's it's thick. Mm. Now, the good part about it is, is you can actually take that, and there is some nutritional value to it, even though it's overmature. It's so high in sugar, it will ensile and make a decent feedable crop. You know, obviously, it's not going to be the quality of like alfalfa and all in your part of the world and, and all. But mm-hmm. when you're in South Florida and it never gets, never freezes, you obviously you only feed hay about a month of the year anyway, and you only feed that when it actually has a bad wet, bad winter. Uh, so a lot of their crop is it, it's not necessary to have that high feed quality. You just need a fiber source 
in something to mix with your commodities to to get to get where you want to be for your ration. So it's it's a trade off. That's the idea that makes the large cattle ranches in Florida make sense is that generally speaking it doesn't freeze if the grass grows year round. Yeah. We were talking about the hay market and and hay sales and hay equipment sales and this and that. And that's one of the things that come up. Well, you know, if we'd have a bad winter down there, the the market would increase, but they really had very mild winters for the last five, six years and haven't had had a lot of freeze. Now, I also know that they called the other day and said that they had a, a pretty hard frost down there for the first time in a long, long time this past week. So you don't really have to feed a lot. and You don't have to worry about quality of hay too much when you're only having a feed for a month. You just got to get something to feed her, fill her gut to get her by until the grass gets back green again. Mm-hmm. One thing I see on Facebook, and obviously the way we do hay in the southeast is a lot different than the way you guys might do hay out, out west. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's different different strategies for different areas, and it's hard to believe. It's hard to understand that when you're in different parts of the world, different strategies work. You know, just because... Right. You you don't bail hay that way. Doesn't mean it, it's not the right way. It's just not the right way for your area. Right. Um, I bailed hay all my life. That's all my family's ever done. When I went to South Florida, I got an education on on well, we do things differently, and this is why. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to test hydraulics, send it to South Florida and let it run in South Florida heat and South Florida sand, South Florida dust. You will absolutely find out where your weak points are. I suspect that's on the loop of design engineers somewhere along the way. Maybe <laughs> maybe some Imperial Valley, maybe some South Florida. <laughs> Quite the range of conditions, for sure. You mentioned that all you've ever done is, is make hay. Tell me about growing up and the farming operation that you run now. My family, we started bagging hay when I guess I was elementary school, and we, uh, we had cows, and, and we were actually using my my grandfather's equipment to, to bale hay for our cows. And it, it was a old 24 T baler and, and a sickle bar more <laughs> that doesn't go very far, very fast. Early on found, figured out that we really needed to, uh, to get some better equipment in order to be able to afford better equipment. I mean, we had to, we had to get more hay bale. So we started custom baling and, and baling a lot of wheat straw and, different custom jobs and different custom operations to to basically pay for our equipment to bail hay for our own cattle. And it wasn't long before the hay end of it started being a lot more profitable than the cattle end of it. And, and before long, we, we were selling straw to Home Depot and Lowe's. And one point in time before my dad retired, we were bailing roughly around, you know, half a million bales a year of wheat straw. We did a lot of uh, unrolling. We ground ground bale it during the straw season just to get it off the field because they had to plant back so quick we couldn't square bale it fast enough to get it off the field. So we would round bale it, bring it back in, and unroll it through the year, unroll it into square bales, over tractor trailers, and out it went. And then as you know, as time went on, we just got bigger and bigger and bigger because we kept wanting more and more equipment. I guess I decided to to go off to the university and. I really actually thought I wanted to be an ag teacher. So I, I got a degree in animal science and ag education, and I found out real quick that the teacher's salary didn't pay for the toys I wanted. Started looking into my other love was sales. I've just always been real focused on sales, and I started moving in that direction. And I was actually diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease lymphoma, and I 
couldn't do some of the things I was doing. And a friend of mine owned a truck dealership, a car dealership. And so I went to selling cars to get sales training. And then from there, ended up in the position I'm in now. My family farm, you know, we all hay and cattle. That's all we was doing. You mentioned Freeman Bailers. Freeman Bailers are made near Portland, Oregon, and they're pretty common in the West. They're not so common in the East. Can you tell me about your experience with those? I laughed when you you and I were talking about it. I, I said the, which obviously, you know, Mikhail, I'm very familiar with them. The, the Freeman Baylor was to, what's the square baler and what the McHale Baylor was to the round baler. It's a baler that's built for high volume, high capacity, and, and high speed. You know, it, it's just, it's built to take the beating of a commercial duty operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never been a dealer network. I guess Freeman really ought to look to doing a distributorship for the Southeast, and maybe they could have marketed more in this area because uh, it, it's just one of those baiters. It's a superior product because it, it's just built heavier. It, it's built to last. It's built to take take the abuse of a high-volume, uh, high-speed operation. My observation, uh, I've run several different brands of baylers. Freeman just has more metal to it. I don't know that. Absolutely. I don't, yeah, the, I don't you, know you can look that at there's. The flywheel on that failure is, is just insane compared to everybody else. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's three or four times the size of the of yeah, any, it, any competitor. Yeah. Very different product for sure. Well, you know, and that that's the type of product. And that's one thing I love about ACI. I, I love about working, you know, working for them. When, when we take on a product line, usually, you know, it's the top of the class. And that's really the, the materials that we focus on. That that's what we look for is is the ones that can then come in and, and dominate the area or bring something to the table that nobody else brings. Something that sets them aside. You know, people don't understand, but it, it doesn't do us any good to if I'm constantly working on a piece of equipment or handling warranty claims on a piece of equipment, that's time that I can't be selling. I don't want a piece of. I don't want to sell a piece of equipment that doesn't work and doesn't perform at, at the standard everybody wants. Because the more trouble we have with that equipment, the more time I'm away from selling, and and obviously I get paid on the amount of equipment I sell. So we want heavy duty equipment. We want we want to sell equipment that sets itself above everybody else's standard. That's one thing I love about Mikhail. It really doesn't matter what the conditions are, what's happening that day. What went on when I go to do a field day and we're competing against other brands of Baylor's, I guess one of my big stories is I had a guy just below Augusta, Georgia, that called him on a demo. And we went out there to do a demo with a dealer. And we got the Baylor hooked up, got everything hooked up, and ready to go to the field. And by the time we got ready to go to the field, it just came a downpour of rain. And the guy was just disappointed. He said, man, I, I just hate that. I, I was looking forward to bailing hay. And I laughed and they told him, I said, well, we can go bail hay if you want to. <laughs> it won't be very good quality when we're done, but if you want to go bail hay, we'll go bail hay. And uh, he laughed. He thought I was kidding. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not kidding. If you want to go bail hay, we'll go bail hay. He said, well, I just cut that three or four acre lot there. It's actually my, my pasture, but it, it was pretty heavy standing grass. And I just wanted something to get, you know, to be able to bail to see. I don't care. It, you know, I'm not going to do anything with it. It's not for me to feed. It's to throw away. Do you, do you really mean that you, you'll go out there and bail that? <laughs> like, sure. Let's go. Let's see what it'll do. And we bailed that hay in the pouring rain, in the middle of a rainstorm. I mean, literally, when we dumped bales out, and you dumped the bale out of the chamber, there was water 
seeping out of the side of the bale, and there would be a puddle of water underneath the, the bale where it was the <laughs> bale was squeezing the water out on the ground, and we were just bailing like mad. People were pulling off side the road watching. It, it, was, it was, you know, and that's the goal. That's what you want. You want to go, and we've got several products to do that, that, that you know, People pull off side the road and watch because it, it's just it's going to perform at a at a higher level. It's, it's just it doesn't matter what the conditions are. It doesn't matter you know, what happened that day. We can bail. You know, we we will bail when when nobody else will. You know, and it, it's it's fun going to, to a demo or a field day when you know that no matter what happens, we we'll, we'll be successful. No matter what happens. We can do what we want to do, and it's just fun. It's exciting. That's a pretty good story. I don't know that I've ever just gone ahead and bailed hay in the rain like that. <laughs> Truthfully, all jokes aside, I think it actually bails a little bit better when it's raining like that because it actually cleans it up and keeps everything good and clean. It actually does a better job. Oh, really? It, it's great. Yeah, it, it's it's really phenomenal the way the way the dual drives on that baler works, if the belt starts to slip, the second drive catches it. So with fixed chambered baler, everybody wants fixed chambered balers for, for wet hay. And I agree, a fixed chambered baler is great for wet hay. And Mikhail makes a fixed chambered baler. And they're, you know, if, if you're doing predominantly wet hay, they're great. What I like about the, the variable chamber balers from Mikhail, you really, the glory of the, the fixed chamber is you don't have the belts. You don't have to worry about the belt slippage. Well, with the McHale, we, we don't have belt slippage. You'll see some when somebody feeds a slug in from a corner or feeds all to one side without, you know, lose, start talking on the phone and don't pay attention. I'm not saying it can't be done, mm-hmm. but from wet crop or heavy crop or that kind of thing, I tell people all the time, Hill Baylor will pretty much bail anything you want to put in front of it. You just got to be able to tell it how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the glory of the Mikhail Baylor is you can adjust the pressure from from the monitor. So if you're in a long, steamy crop and the baler's having trouble starting the bale, well, you can dial down the core pressure to allow it to, to form the core easier. You can actually change the core size from the monitor. If you want it to, to stay at that lower pressure for a longer period of time until you get it rotating better, the centrifugal force of the bale, bale turning in the chamber actually helps the crop come in. So after you get that bale started, then you can transfer up to a higher pressure and make it still make a good hard type bale. And all that can be controlled from the monitor. You can dial up the outside pressure to pack it tight. You can dial down the inside pressure or the core pressure. Uh, you can change all those uh, core sizes and that kind of thing. It, it's, and it sounds complicated, but it just takes a little experience. It takes a little time to be able to to look at the crop and kind of decide, okay, need need a little bit lower pressure or you need a little higher pressure here. And, but once you get the hang of, of it, once you've run it a little while, it, it's very easy to do. And I tell guys that, that are new to the baler that are just starting to run the baler, if you started off at a low pressure, it's never going to make it just a terrible-looking bale. Start it off at a low pressure and then start easing it up little by little until you get it to where you want. And before long, after you've done that for you know, after you've bailed a few bales doing that, you, you get really good at being able to just kind of walk into a field and looking at it and saying, okay, I'm going to start right here. And then you might dial it up a point or dial it down a point, depending on what the crop is. But you have the ability to do all that from the monitor just by clicking a few buttons. 
the other great thing is if you make a mistake and you don't necessarily have it set right, you clog it up, you hit a, hit a button on the monitor and hit your hydraulics and drop the floor, clear the slug, and keep on going. Hmm. Uh, I tell everybody one of the great things of the drop floor is that you can keep going faster and faster and faster until you meet the limits of the baler. Whereas when I was a kid, you didn't push your limits because you didn't want to get out and have to dig out that pickup. But you got to a point where you were happy at, happy with it, and you, you left it because you didn't want to have to jam it and have to get out and dig it out by hand. Now you can push it to this absolute limit once you get once you do jam it. You can clear it and then just stay a little bit below that, and you're good. So it, it's one of those situations where technology has made it a lot easier on the farmer. That's a really good demonstration of thinking different. I think most everybody that's ever run a baler has plugged one, and whether it's a small square baler, or big baler, round baler of any kind. The reason my elbow was hurt like it do is from digging out all those balers when I were, when I was a teenager. Oh. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yep. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you.